Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, American Hauntings listeners, it's Troy. Don't have enough American Hauntings in your life? Yeah, me either. But in your case, you're not chained to your desk. Being forced to create content for Cody... You get to listen by choice, so why not listen to our other podcast? As a Patreon supporter, you can get a new alternative podcast episode every week. And right now, we're in the middle of our third season, Sinister, the true story of H.H. Holmes. You know, the serial killer, builder of the legendary murder castle, and the devil who became the villain of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Every episode delves deep into Holmes's most devious crimes and depraved murders. So check it out. Get that new episode every week and be a part of American Hauntings by becoming a Patreon supporter and subscribing at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. And now, on with the show. On March 10th, 1928, Los Angeles mother Christine Collins was faced with every parent's worst fear, the disappearance of her child. Her son, Walter, vanished that afternoon. It was a nice spring day in LA and Walter had asked his mother for 25 cents so he could go see a movie at their Lincoln Heights neighborhood theater and buy a box of popcorn too, of course. Walter was 10 more than old enough in the late 1920s to look out for himself. He loved movies, and whenever his mother had a little extra money, she allowed him to go. But when it started to get dark that day and Walter still hadn't come home, Christine started to worry. She'd been fixing dinner, expecting Walter to come home any time. But now she moved the skillet off the stove and went out onto the front porch to watch for him. She expected to see him down at the end of the block, walking home with his usual smile, but she waited for another hour. Still no Walter. By the time the sun went down, her worry turned to panic. Christine hurried from one home to the next, up and down the block, stopping at the house of each of Walter's friends, but no one had seen him. They had no idea where he was. Finally, Christine called the police. Initially, the cops suspected that the boy had run away, but his mother insisted he'd never do that. She feared the worst that Walter had been kidnapped. And it's easy to understand why she would have felt that way. When the story of the missing boy began appearing in the newspapers, the people of Los Angeles shared Christine's fears. The city was still traumatized by the December 1927 kidnapping and brutal murder of a young girl named Marion Parker. Her kidnapper had been a psychopath named William Hickman, who took the girl because of a grudge against her father. Hickman demanded a ransom, but had already murdered the girl. He was arrested and convicted just weeks before Walter Collins disappeared, and the story was still fresh in the minds of the newspaper-reading public. Marion had been the daughter of a prominent banker, but Christine Collins was a telephone operator with an ex-husband who was locked away at Folsom Prison. 
so it seemed unlikely that her son was taken for ransom. Without money as a motive, the police decided that revenge was just as likely, so they started to look for anyone with a grudge against the Collins family. But that angle of investigation soon stalled out, but asking questions around the neighborhood did turn up a few leads that seemed promising. Neighbors came forward. They said that in the days before Walter's disappearance, an Italian-looking man and woman were asking for the Collins' address. No one could offer a complete description of the couple. Detectives interviewed some of Walter Collins' classmates, and one of them, a 12-year-old named Lloyd Tudor, partially identified a mugshot of an ex-convict who had been looking for the Collins' home. But that lead also led nowhere. A witness came forward who claimed that he'd seen Walter at a gas station near Glendale. He was sitting in the back seat of a car, but only his face was showing. The witness insisted the rest of him had been covered by newspapers. Anyway, the owner of the service station had seen the boy in the car, but hadn't gotten a good look at him. But he did say the man driving the car was foreign-faced, whatever that means, and a woman was with him. Well, that lead also went nowhere, but strangely, it did seem to also describe the couple neighbors claimed had been looking for the Collins' address right before Walter vanished. Meanwhile, the search of the Lincoln Heights neighborhood and the surrounding area continued. Detectives searched for the Italian couple, the car they drove, and then began using volunteers to scour lakes, ponds, rivers, and every other water source they could find. But there was no trace of Walter. The case was now national news, which put even more pressure on the LAPD to find the kid. But there was only so much they could do. Hundreds of officers had been assigned to search for the boy, but he was nowhere to be found, and the case was getting colder by the day. Christine was devastated by Walter's disappearance, but she refused to give up hope. Months passed, and she couldn't afford to stay home from work, so she divided her time between her job at the telephone company and assisting with the search for Walter. She worked long, grueling hours trying to keep her worries about her son's fate from killing her. She slept little and lost weight, but would not accept the idea that Walter was lost forever. And then, five months after he disappeared, Christine received urgent news. Walter was alive. He'd been found in DeKalb, Illinois. The how and why of Walter's journey east to Illinois was unclear, but there was a lot about the story that didn't make sense. But Christine didn't care about the story. All she wanted was her son. The boy was put on a train and sent to Los Angeles. The reunion of mother and son was celebrated as a massive success for the police department, which had recently been criticized in the papers for scandals caused by bribery and the mistreatment of suspects. But there turned out to be one small problem. As soon as the boy stepped off the train, Christine realized that he was not Walter. I don't think that is my boy, she said. Captain J.J. Jones of the Los Angeles Police Department refused to listen to Christine's claims. He insisted that the boy had changed because of passing time and because of the traumatic conditions under which he'd been living. But Christine refused to go along with this. She'd know her son, no matter the circumstances. But Jones insisted that the LAPD would not have made a mistake. So trying to avoid public humiliation, Jones forced Christine to take this alternate Walter home with her for a while to see if her memory would clear up and she'd realize he was her son. You see, Jones's advice was this. 
Take the boy home and try him out for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Under intense pressure from the police, the press, and the public, Christine agreed to take the boy home with her. Well, during the time when Christine was trying him out, the police questioned the boy in hopes of finding his abductor. He was asked how he'd escaped and how he ended up in Illinois. Detectives, doctors, and psychiatrists were unable to get straight answers from him. He said little to nothing of substance, but insisted that he was Walter Collins. Christine, though, knew he was not her son, but she agreed to care for him because he had no one else. She still worked to prove that her actual son was still out there because she didn't want the police to stop looking for him. She took the boy to her family dentist, where she obtained the real Walter's dental records to show the difference between her son's teeth and those of the boy who was living in her house. The records didn't match, so she took them to Captain Jones. But Jones still refused to listen. He wouldn't even look at the dental records. He didn't believe Christine's story, or at least he claimed he didn't. I've always believed that Jones was too stubborn and proud to admit that he and the LAPD could be wrong. He accused Christine of trying to humiliate the police department and told her he wouldn't stand for slander, especially from a woman. He knew an easy way to shut her up, one that had proven effective for the LAPD before, and he had Christine committed to a psychiatric ward at the General Hospital as a Code 12 internment. This was a method used by the police to lock up people they saw as being difficult. Well, Christine endured horrible abuse in the mental ward. She was drugged and subjected to shock treatments to help her come to her senses and admit the boy found in Illinois was her son. She eventually spent 10 months locked up on the psychiatric floor, but she never came to her senses as doctors and police officials demanded that she had to. She was only released when the boy finally confessed he was not Walter Collins. His real name was Arthur Hutchins Jr., and he was 12 years old. According to his story, after his mother died, he began to be cared for by his abusive stepmother. She often locked him in closets and tortured him until he finally ran away from home. While in a cafe in Illinois, he saw a picture of Walter in the newspaper, saw a resemblance, and decided to seize the opportunity. He knew that if he pretended to be Walter, he'd have a one-way ticket to L.A., where he might meet his favorite movie star, cowboy actor Tom Mix, and maybe he could get into Hollywood movies himself. Well, he didn't get to experience either of those things. Instead, he was packed up and sent back to his father and stepmother back east. The LAPD washed its hands of the boy, who'd shown no remorse for what he'd done. Almost as an afterthought, police officials arranged the release of Christine Collins from the psychiatric ward a few days later. She was relieved to be out of the hospital and grateful that the situation with Arthur Hutchins had been resolved, but she couldn't forget, of course, that her son was still missing. She returned to her job and her daily routine of working, going home to an empty house and hoping to learn what had happened to Walter. Christine Collins still refused to give up. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. 
Since the start of American history, our nation has been plagued by tragic events, strange occurrences, and with mysteries that cannot be explained, just like the disappearances we've been featuring this season. For our seventh season, we've opened the files of people who have gone missing and have vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. These have been stories of heartbreak, tragedy, and despair. They've been bizarre, unexpected, and have often seemed impossible. And yet they did happen. Every one of the people who has been part of this season walked into oblivion and never returned. Every case remains open. Every mystery is unsolved. Each story ends with no real conclusion. Because every one of them is simply gone. We're getting close to the end of the season, and we've saved some of the most baffling tales as Gone draws to a close, including this one, episode 20, a story that's so depraved and terrifying that we're offering a warning for listeners who are faint of heart. This one gets bad. So if you don't think you can handle it, you might want to turn it off now. Are you still here? Well, don't say we didn't warn you. Before Arthur Hutchins confessed to pretending to be Walter Collins and before Christine was locked away in a mental hospital for daring to question the LAPD, two other children had also gone missing. Nelson and Louis Winslow were brothers from Pomona. They had vanished one day after leaving a meeting of the local model boat club. Nelson was 10. He had light hair, blue eyes, and was wearing a blue shirt and short pants that day. Lewis was older at age 12, but had the same light hair and blue eyes. The slightly taller boy was wearing his Boy Scout uniform when they disappeared. The boys had rarely been in trouble and never for anything serious, and their parents were adamant about the fact that they wouldn't run away from home. The boys had been missing two weeks when the Winslows received a note from them in the mail. It was written on the flyleaf of a book that had been taken from the Pomona Public Library. The note said they'd left town and wanted to see the world, and were on their way to Mexico to look for gold. The note was ridiculous, and their parents were sure the boys hadn't written it. Even so, the police sent telegrams to the border authorities asking them to detain the boys if they were found attempting to cross into Mexico. Well, needless to say, there were no sightings of Lewis or Nelson at the border, but they didn't seem to be anywhere else either. The area was searched, and friends and neighbors were questioned, but there were no clues to the whereabouts of the brothers. The Winslows soon found themselves in the same sort of hell that Christine Collins was stuck in. They were afraid to hope for fresh leads in the case and feared that the next telephone call would bring the news they never wanted to receive. Because the Winslow home was 30 miles east of the Collins' bungalow in Lincoln Heights, the police didn't make a connection between Walter and the Winslow boys. The authorities also had no reason to connect those disappearances to the discovery of the headless body of a boy that was found on a roadside in La Puente. But they were connected. Unknown to the police, a series of horrific events was taking place in the small town of Wineville, California. And it would become known as one of the most heinous in the history of the state. The horror that would be dubbed the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders began to unravel in September 1928 when a young woman named Jessie Clark decided to check up on her younger brother Sanford, who had moved to California two years earlier to live with their uncle, Gordon Stewart Northcutt, and his mother, Sarah. Jessie had every reason to worry. 
She'd soon find her brother, but she'd also learn he was keeping a secret that was far worse than anything she could imagine. It was a secret that he was being forced to keep by Gordon Northcutt. Northcutt had been born in Saskatchewan in Canada in 1906 and was raised in British Columbia. He moved to Los Angeles with his parents in 1924. Looking for seclusion, he had convinced his father to purchase a plot of land in Wineville, about an hour outside of L.A., where his father helped him build a house and a chicken ranch. To help operate the ranch, Northcutt had lured Sanford Clark from Canada to California. Sanford, only 13 at the time, packed his bags and made the trip to Wineville, excited at the prospect of working on the farm. But that excitement quickly disappeared. He found out that his uncle wasn't really looking for help with the farm. In the months that followed, Sanford was repeatedly physically and sexually abused by Northcutt. He was eventually so traumatized that he was willing to do anything his uncle told him to do. Back in Canada, Sanford's mother, Winifred, had started to get worried about her son. His letters, which didn't arrive very often, led her to believe that not all was well on the chicken farm. She was so concerned that she contacted police officials in the United States, explaining that she had reason to believe her son was in danger. Rather than immediately taking action, though, officials listened politely, took notes, and promised they'd look into the situation as soon as they had time. While upset by law enforcement's lack of concern about Sanford, his 19-year-old sister, Jessie, decided to travel down from Canada to see what was going on at the chicken ranch. She found her brother alive and mostly well, but she also found that she'd had good reason to be worried about what was happening on the farm. According to Sanford, Northcutt was cruel and abusive. He'd been tortured since he'd arrived, and while he wanted to leave, he was afraid of what might happen if he tried to escape and failed. He knew what Northcutt was capable of, and he didn't want to be punished worse than he'd already been. But what was really going on? Jessie prodded her brother to tell her all of it, and finally the boy broke down and admitted just how depraved their uncle really was. Not only was he a monster, but he'd also murdered an unknown number of children. Sanford knew this because he'd been forced to help bury the bodies of four of those boys under the dirt floor of a chicken coop. Jessie realized that Sanford was deadly serious. She wasn't sure how to handle the situation, but she knew she had to get them away from the farm as soon as possible. Bravely, she confronted Northcutt, not about the murders, but about the mistreatment of Sanford. But Northcutt lashed out at her and struck her across the face. Jessie tried to get Sanford to leave with her, but the boy was too afraid. So Jessie fled the ranch and returned to Canada, but swore to her brother that she'd be back, and next time, she wouldn't be alone. Later, Jesse would come to realize how lucky she was to have escaped. Safely out of Northcutt's reach, Jesse went to the U.S. consulate and passed on everything Sanford had told her about their uncle's activities. The consul wasted no time in contacting the authorities in Los Angeles about the allegations of serious criminal activity in Wineville. Amazingly, though, a few weeks passed before anyone was sent to the farm to investigate Jesse's claims. Two immigration officers arrived on a warm day in late August 1928, but Gordon Northcutt saw them coming and took off running out the back door. Before fleeing into the nearby woods, he ordered Sanford to stall the agents as long as he could. If he didn't, Northcutt said he would circle back and shoot him before the cops knew what was happening. Well, the boy did as he was told. 
He was terrified of his uncle, and he'd witnessed two long years of reasons why he should be. Northcutt went directly to the home of his mother, Sarah, in Los Angeles. When he arrived on her doorstep telling her the law was after him, she dropped everything and made arrangements for them to return to Canada. As she would later tell the authorities, she would do anything for Gordon. Three weeks later, mother and son were arrested in British Columbia. Although two long years would pass before they were extradited to California to stand trial for the murders that were just about to shock and terrify the people of California and the rest of the nation. It had been Sanford Clark who had put the police on the trail of Gordon and Sarah Northcutt. He'd eventually spilled a blood-curdling story of unimaginable brutality and sexual depravity that took place during his life on the chicken farm with his uncle. He confessed to being forced into committing murder and acting as an unwilling accomplice in the kidnapping of other boys. All the boys they took were held captive at the ranch, murdered with an ax, and then buried on the property. Even veteran detectives were stunned by Sanford's admissions. In shock and probably disbelief, they went back to Wineville to search for the chicken coop where Northcutt's victims were said to be buried. Once there, they found one gruesome piece of evidence after another. In plain view were blood-stained axes with hair clinging to the blades. There were Boy Scout badges, a toy whistle, articles of clothing, and a tattered library book with a library card attached that had the borrower's name on it. Nelson Winslow. Investigators discovered that he had gone missing three months earlier. Sanford confessed to using paper from the book to write a note to the boy's parents. The Winslow brothers had obviously never made it to Mexico. Sanford took the police to the graves that were located on the property, and when all was said and done, 51 human body parts were collected from the dirt beneath the chicken coop. But when investigators looked closely, it became clear that someone had disturbed the grave sites before they arrived. It seemed that some of the remains buried there were now missing. It would later be revealed that Northcutt had moved the bodies to try and avoid discovery, burning and scattering bones in the desert soon after Jesse Clark had fled the ranch without her brother. But Northcutt had been in such a hurry when he escaped that he left enough evidence to hang himself in the ranch house. It was there that investigators found more bloody cutting tools, human hair and bones, and a mattress that was soaked with blood. Detectives would be convinced that at least 20 children had been murdered at the ranch over the past four years, but they could never prove it. Instead, Northcutt would be charged only with the murders of the Winslow brothers and the unknown victim whose headless body was found near La Puente. Investigators would later identify that boy as Alvin Gothia, who had been missing since early 1928. Initially, Northcutt admitted to murdering five boys in cold blood, but by the time he'd been extradited back to the States for trial, he changed his mind and denied any involvement in the killings at all. But prosecutors didn't care. They had all the evidence they needed to nail him for three murders, even if that wasn't nearly as many as they were convinced he committed. Meanwhile, when she was confronted with all the evidence against them, Sarah confessed to murdering one of the boys herself. She said that Gordon had always told her to stay away from the chicken coops, but curiosity got the better of her one evening when her son was away from the farm. In one of the cages, she found a filthy little boy who was frightened out of his wits. When she confronted Gordon about it, he casually explained that he'd kidnapped the boy a few days earlier. Sarah, 
always trying to protect her son, informed him that now he'd have to kill the child since the boy had seen his face and could identify him. But Sarah beat him to it. Later that evening, she returned to the chicken coop and struck the boy with the blunt side of an axe until he was dead. Well, Sarah's confession had seemingly exonerated Northcutt for one of the murders. Or it would have if she didn't also recant her confession before the trial. Well, the story became a sensation all over again, and newspaper reporters flocked to Northcutt when he was being brought back to California for the trial. They wrote about the good-looking youth with the disarming manner and about his ready smile and deep blue eyes. Oh, brother. From his seat on the train, to which he was chained and surrounded by detectives, Northcutt disputed many of the stories that were being told about him, claiming they were awful things to say about a man. Those people had too much imagination, he said, and they'd be sorry when this trial was over and he'd gotten everything cleared up. He explained he was innocent and had only gone on the run to shield his poor little mother. The accusations almost killed her, he claimed. She was such a delicate woman that he wanted to make sure she was safe before he returned alone to fight the false charges. Of course, Keep in mind that his poor little delicate mother had already admitted to using the blunt side of an axe to kill some kid. Well, at trial, arrogance and stupidity could have been the names of the defense attorneys, but Northcutt didn't think he needed one. He'd always lived under the assumption that he was the smartest person in any room, so he insisted on acting as his own lawyer. And it didn't go well. His inept cross-examination of Sanford Clark was so damaging to his own case that the prosecution never once offered any objections. Despite his terrible performance, Gordon was pleased with himself, though. I'm not such a bad attorney after all, am I? He asked reporters. I'm guessing they didn't answer. Meanwhile, his mother Sarah, probably hearing about how badly her son's trial was going, surprised everyone by reversing her confession again and now saying that she had murdered the boy and she'd killed all the others too. She wanted to take responsibility for all the murders committed at the ranch, but the prosecutor's office didn't believe her. She was clearly just attempting to save her son. Well, as Northcutt's trial continued, evidence was presented that dozens of boys had been grabbed and brought back to the farm over the years. Most were sexually abused before being dropped off again near the places where they'd been abducted. Before he released his victims, Northcutt would warn them that he knew where they lived and would kill them and their families if they spoke a word about what had happened. And the threats had been effective. None of the boys spoke of the brutal incidents until after Gordon Northcutt was safely behind bars. The children he'd chosen to keep had all been murdered after he was finished with them. Or, as some investigators theorized, those boys had been killed because they'd put up a fight, and Northcutt knew they'd talk if he let them go free. Northcutt's trial stretched out over a few days, but its outcome seemed inevitable. The jury heard a grisly tale of kidnapping, molestation, torture, and murder, and they returned with a guilty verdict on February 8, 1921. He was sentenced to death by hanging. While Northcutt was waiting for his execution date, his mother's trial was coming to an end. She was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of the boy in the chicken coop, even though his body was never found. During her sentencing hearing, Sarah continued to insist that Gordon was innocent of the murders. She also made a variety of wild claims about him, too. 
She said that he was the illegitimate son of an English nobleman and that she was actually Gordon's grandmother, not his mother. His real mother was her daughter and she'd gotten pregnant after an incestuous affair with her father, which kind of ruined the whole English nobleman thing. But she also declared that if he had committed the murders, which of course he hadn't because she had, it wasn't his fault because when he was a boy, he'd been sexually abused by the whole family. <sighs> These people were nuts. Anyway, Sarah went off to serve her time, but she ended up being paroled after less than 12 years due to her declining health. She died in 1944. Whether or not Sarah actually killed the boy she found in the chicken coop remains a mystery. I mean, she would say or do anything to protect her psychopathic son, so it's impossible to know if she was telling the truth. But if she was, and she really did kill the boy, I suppose now would be the right time to reveal just who that boy was alleged to be. She claimed it was Walter Collins. Sarah said that the boy needed to die because Gordon had once worked at the grocery store where Walter sometimes shopped for his mother and he was sure to recognize him. When news of this reached Christine Collins, she was stunned. At the time of Northcutt's capture, she still believed that Walter was only missing. Since his remains had never been found, she held out hope he might still be alive. But she traveled to San Quentin to see Northcutt, where he waited on death row, so she could ask him if he and his mother had really killed her son. Although Northcutt and his mother had admitted to having abducted and murdered Walter, he now insisted the confessions weren't true. They hadn't killed her son. Since Walter's body was never found, there's a very slim chance that Northcutt was telling the truth. It's more likely, though, that he was merely torturing her or taking advantage of the situation to try and delay his execution by claiming to have new information about the case. But I suppose we'll never know for sure, because he took whatever the truth was to the grave with him. Northcutt was hanged on October 2nd, 1930 at San Quentin. He was 23 years old. It was said that he had to be supported during his climb up the stairs, and then he collapsed on the gallows. He was, more or less, pushed onto the trap door, which sprung open, causing him to fall and strangle to death at the end of the rope. I hope this is true. That way, he got a little of what he deserved. Well, you might be wondering, whatever happened to Gordon Northcutt's father, George? Hiding from all the attention after the story of the murders broke, he left California for Maryland. After Sarah went to prison, though, he began lobbying for her parole. In November 1935, he wrote to prison authorities that there was no evidence that Sarah had murdered any of the boys. It's impossible to know if he really believed that his wife was innocent or if he was simply going along with a news story that had been cooked up, that Sanford and Jesse Clark had made up the whole crazy story out of jealousy and spite. Well, what was clear was that George still loved his wife, you know, the one who confessed to murder and the one who accused him of raping his own son and getting his daughter pregnant at her sentencing hearing. She must have appreciated his efforts, though. When Sarah was paroled, she returned to live with her husband and was with him still when she died of natural causes four years later. Sanford Clark was never tried for any of the crimes at Wineville Ranch. If he participated in any of the murders, it was decided it was under extreme duress. He was sent to the State Industrial School for Boys in Whittier, California for two years. And during his time there, he impressed the staff with his desire to lead a productive life. And he was released in 1931. 
he returned to Canada and settled in Saskatchewan. He was married in 1935, and he and his wife, June, later adopted two little boys. During World War II, he served with the 21st Battery, 6th Field Regiment of the Royal Canadian Artillery. He worked for the post office until suffering a major heart attack in the 1970s. But he lived to die in 1991, leaving behind numerous grandchildren and a lifetime of quiet community service. Family and friends who were closest to him say he never discussed his experiences on the ranch. Arthur Hutchins, the boy who arrived in Los Angeles as the fake Walter Collins, led a more stable life after his California excursion. Confined to Iowa State Training School for Boys until he reached the age of 14, he worked in various carnivals before settling down back in California to train horses and become a jockey. Horses, of course, had been his lifelong dream. He later married and had a daughter who grew up idolizing her adventurous father. He died in 1954. As for Christine Collins, she filed a lawsuit against the LAPD, which she won in September 1930. Captain J.J. Jones was found personally liable for the $10,800 in damages the court awarded her. He had, after all, been the one who sent her to a psychiatric ward because she dared to question his authority. But Jones never paid a penny of it. He was suspended from the department during an investigation into his mishandling of the case, but was reinstated after being cleared of any wrongdoing. Christine later remarried, but had no more children. She clung to the words that Gordon Northcutt had said to her from his prison cell and never gave up hope that her son might be returned to her alive. She died in 1964, still refusing to believe that he was dead. Sadly, though, Walter Collins never returned. But that's not quite the end of our story. You see, things were never the same again in the town of Wineville. Once known for its scenic landscapes and lush greenery, it was now infamous for being the home of a notorious child killer. So just one month after Gordon Northcutt's execution, the town officially changed its name from Wineville to Miraloma, which means Hillview. They wanted to bury the past and start over as something new. But it wouldn't be quite that easy. Over time, the chicken ranch was swallowed by the town and vanished into the neighborhoods. The outbuildings were torn down, the land was developed, and for a time, the horrifying story of what occurred on the property was largely forgotten. Or it would have been, if the house where such terrible things occurred had not been left standing, and if that house didn't have a reputation for being haunted. It wouldn't be until 2008 that most people became aware of the gruesome history of the house in Miraloma. That was when the film Changeling about the Walter Collins disappearance was released. It was directed by Clint Eastwood and starred Angelina Jolie as Christine Collins. And the media interest in the film and in the true story that inspired it revealed to most locals that horrific events had occurred in their community. Now, the chicken farm had been gone for years but the house that Gordon Northcutt lived in was still standing on Wineville Road. At the time of the film's release, there was a couple living there. However, when they learned what had taken place in the house, they moved out and moved out of the area. Did they leave because of the horror attached to the property or was it as 
many who lived in the area believed because they finally had an explanation for why their house was so haunted. Past occupants of the house later came forward with their own stories about living in a house where the killer behind the Wineville chicken coop murders had preyed on his victims. One young woman recalled living in the house when she was about eight years old. Neither she nor her family had any idea about the house's history. They had moved in because the house was owned by a friend of the family who allowed them to stay there for free as long as they looked out for the place. You see, it seemed the friend had had some trouble keeping tenants. The young woman noted that she always felt uncomfortable in the house, as though someone was watching her. She mentioned the sensation to her parents, but they dismissed it as the imagination of a child. One night, though, she was on her way to use the bathroom and walked past her parents' room, glancing in to see the shadow of a man on the wall. She assumed at first it was her father, but then she heard gurgling and choking noises coming from inside the room. It sounded like someone, she said, trying to spit something out. Who's there? She called out. Well, there was no answer. So she pushed the bedroom door open the rest of the way and found the room was empty. Her most frightening memory of the house took place one summer when her aunt, uncle, and cousins came to visit the family. It was late in the evening, around 11 p.m., and the children were still playing in the yard. They were excited to be together after some time apart, and all the cousins were too rowdy to go to sleep. And then out of the darkness, they heard what sounded like young boys screaming and crying. The family owned two large dogs, and the animals immediately reacted. Their ears laid back on their heads, and the dogs began barking loudly at nothing. But then all the kids saw the shadow on the white wall that surrounded the yard. It looked like a man's shadow, she said in an interview and he wasn't alone. He was holding a small boy, dangling him in the air. The boy's legs flailed and kicked out at the man, but they were too short to reach him. He grabbed hold of the boy by the hair, she recalled, and then swung something with his other hand, cutting the boy's head from his body. As the shadow man still had the head in his hand, the body fell to the ground. We stood there with our mouths open, but no screams coming out, she said, when they heard a chilling laugh that seemed to come from everywhere in the backyard at the same time, the children ran screaming into the house. Not surprisingly, neither set of parents believed the wild tale. It was not until the girl's two older sisters admitted that they too had also had frightening experiences in the house, that was when the adults decided to listen. The older girls reported seeing shadows walking outside their bedroom window at night and hearing footsteps in the house when no one was at home. The family didn't move out of the house right away, and she continued to experience weird things during the rest of the family's time there. One time, my younger sister fell on the concrete without tripping over anything and cracked her skull, she remembered. She felt unseen hands grab her and push her down hard. There were a lot of things that couldn't be explained, but my parents insisted there must be an explanation to everything. I think they just wanted us to feel more comfortable in that house since we all knew we were going to stay there a little longer. The family lived in the house for three years before they moved to another part of Mariloma. And the witness definitely didn't miss the place once they left it behind. While other families also had uncomfortable times in the house, one man often stayed there with his aunt and uncle when he was a boy. This would have been back in the 1950s when people in the area still had livestock, chickens, and horses. He recalled that one night the horses in the barn began behaving strangely, banging on the stalls, stomping their hoofs, and making a lot of noise. 
His uncle went out to see what was wrong and then quickly returned to the house. He hurried inside and bolted the door. His face had turned white. He'd seen a boy outside near the barn, a boy who had disappeared right in front of his eyes. After the Northcutt Ranch was sold, the land was divided into lots and new homes were built on the property, property that surrounded the original house where Northcutt had lived and where he'd terrorized his young nephew. A couple who lived in one of the houses built on the ranch property also believed their house was haunted. They moved into the place in 2007, and a few months later witnessed something they'd never forget. In October, the couple had just returned from a birthday party in Los Angeles. It was late, or really early, I guess, about 1 a.m., and they were sitting at the dining room table talking about the fun they'd had at the party. Their son, who was nine years old at the time, was by then already asleep in his room. Suddenly, both of them looked up and saw a young boy wearing what appeared to be denim overalls over a white shirt step halfway out of their son's room. The mother yelled her son's name and ran toward the room to see what was going on. The man later recalled, I knew it wasn't my son immediately because of the clothing, and I just froze, trying to figure out what was happening. Did you see that? His wife demanded, and he told her that he had. Now they believed all the things their son had been telling them since they'd moved into the house. You see, for weeks he'd been telling his parents that he often saw a little boy sitting in the corner of his room. They assumed it was a, an imaginary friend. I mean, he was the right age for it. And they hadn't noticed anything out of the ordinary in the house until that night. Well, after the incident, their son began refusing to sleep in his room. He insisted on sleeping in the guest room. And he always wanted a light left on, something he'd never asked for before. And he was not the only one who had trouble sleeping. When family members came to stay, many of them complained about how some rooms in the house were too cold, or about hearing footsteps, or about doors that opened and closed on their own. After a visit or two, most of them simply refused to come back, or at least to stay in the house after dark. It would not be until the release of the film based on the Walter Collins case that the couple realized the morbid history of not only Mariloma, but of their own property. They had a ghost in their house, they realized, and based on what had happened there, they weren't surprised. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for returning for more uh, episodes of the American Hauntings podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call Gone. Gone. And yeah, depending on which uh, uh, podcast platform you're on, it might be Gone. Um, I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and honestly, just letting you all know, like, this is the nicest human being in the whole world. Crime buff, founder of American Hauntings, uh, Troy Taylor. Troy. Uh, how you doing, man? I just want to, like, thank everybody out there for, like, thank you for dealing with, you know, weird recording sounds or, like, weird, uh, uh, you know. My squeaky uh, chair. Squeaky chairs or delayed episodes and all that. Like, we're trying the best that we can do. And I promise you that Troy and I 
are more way more upset about this issue than than we than than you yeah. are. We're, yeah. we, you know, well, so we're it's, to I mean, it it's October. Out. We're trying to give you an episode every week, and it seems like there's always something interfering. And then we just came off doing extra episodes with the Alton stuff, and so we're trying to get caught up. And we're trying to we're get still caught doing up. The Patreon stuff too, and. It's uh, it, it's October. Did I mention it was October? Yeah, so, and so October. Yeah, I don't know. It, is, is October? <laughs> is is October? Like, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it a like overly busy time for you guys? Is that not yeah. a spooky? Thing? Uh, well, here here's the equivalent. This is this is how I I compared it to make it understandable to uh, to someone the other day when I was talking about this, and I said, you know, I figured out why it is that October is so overwhelming in the business I'm in. Uh, picture me as the owner of an Irish pub at St. Patrick's Day. Okay, I've actually when, actually seen you almost yes. you there. Yeah. Yes. As a, you know, when everyone's Irish and they're just completely swamped and overwhelmed. Yeah. That's my entire month of October. They have shirts on. When, they're like, fight me if I'm Irish. Yes. Like, Everybody please, please feels do compelled to do something spooky. And so, which don't get me wrong. It's great. I'm, and I'm glad it's fun. But it's it can be overwhelming, you know, so we're we're just kind of scrambling around getting stuff to, together as best we can. And, um, you know, I've got no more free day. I don't have a single day off um, this month, um, the rest of the month. And even even November is kind of busy. But but let's just not worry about it because let's focus on this. I'm going to focus on this Wednesday, which is like the only event I have left. That if you have not done one or made plans to do one with me during October, this is the only one that you can do. This is October 18th, and it is in Edwardsville, Illinois, at the Wildy Theater, which is a restored old theater uh, in the downtown part of Edwardsville. And I'm doing a St. Louis exorcism presentation there that night. It is free. Starts at 6 o'clock. Doors open at 5 and um, it's going to be first come, first serve seating. And even though it's a whole theater, it's probably going to fill up. So uh, if, you, if you're wanting to do something, that'll be cool and free. Uh, and even if you've seen it before, I can tell you that if it's been a while since you've seen this presentation, I promise you it's different. I'm always changing it up and moving things around and shifting things around so it doesn't get too boring for me. Plus, then I find out new things and I like to add them in. And it's Rather than try to every time I find something new, do a reprint of the book, I just, I just you know, um, put them into the presentation. So uh, anyway, I, I don't have anything else in October to offer you. Uh, so hopefully this would be something that you will find fun. Come out and do it. Uh, then after that, we've got some events in November. Uh, a lot of those are sold out, too. Uh, but I do still have some tours and things in November and December. So there are still things coming up this year. Um, my, uh, the Christmas event, the big spirits of Christmas event is December 16th. Uh, and that's going to be a big one. I do that every year. I, I'm not a huge fan of Christmas, but I like this version of Christmas, which mm -hmm. is sort of the dark side of Christmas, Krampus. monsters, murders, mayhem, you know, that kind of thing. So it is a lot of fun and it's, it's different than other stuff I do, but we also posted winter events too. Um, you know, St. Louis exorcism, Southern Illinois gangs. Couple of new ones, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, I'm doing a, a dinner event uh, for Bonnie and Clyde, and we're also doing one that I know you'll love, uh, Suffer the Children, uh, which is no, you know, killer no, no. kids no, and no, 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 people who kill kids. No. So I know you don't. Well, <laughs> you with the kids, not not a good thing. So, but anyway, uh, so we got some new stuff coming up this winter too, and uh, but I I'm not ready to think about that too hard yet. I, I just want to get through the rest of the month. So. Hell yeah.
Yeah. So you're feeling good about the rest of the year, at least, though. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. And, and you know, October has been good. I mean, it's been a lot of fun so far. Um, no major problems. Um, I'm. Yeah. Knocking on all the wood that I have. Uh, just so that there aren't any, which is um, a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. I have a lot of wood around here, but that's a you know, a couple minor things, little glitches here and there. But other than that, it's been pretty good. So beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hey, I will be around for some of those events. Um, cool. Just mostly to see like how Troy does so much better than me at Edwardsville <laughs> Library. But um, other than that, yeah, we have we have yeah, uh, some some kind of got some practice. So, yeah, I know. Some um, some listener reviews. So this one. Oh, no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, you know, you still uh, more stuff. OK, yeah, yeah, I wanted to do something different. Remember, yeah, we, please. Uh, we talked last time and we gave out everybody. We gave them our text uh, number. And oh, gosh, people, wait, you know, yes. if they had a comment or a quick question. Send us a text. Um, so, you know, we, you can text us at 217-791-7859. Uh, it might get read on the show and actually I had more texts than this. We had an outage and I lost some of them. So if I do not read your text, please send it again. If you still have it, um, cause I would like to read it, but unfortunately I lost some stuff because I was, I told Cody, we needed a, um, a name for this you know uh we do text line it can't be the morbid something. curious it's got to be something no no else. we already we're already using that so yeah. but and then one of our listeners had you know sent me a message and said hey is this a haunted text a hexed if you will uh -huh. which i thought was funny and then lost their message american so haunting hex line yeah. like yeah we, we got to figure yeah. out something so just yeah, send in your stuff i know so um i lost this message and i lost a couple of them um i think um april and i don't i want to say she was in the 819 area code but i'm not positive on that um but she had uh, reinforced my uh my my i i'm sure my my embarrassing you know comments about oklahoma last time even though i love oklahoma there's some wild ass people out there and she said you're right about most of our residents so she made me feel a little bit better because i was feeling pretty bad about it i did say uh, but some yeah things i lost about hers too i just happened too. to remember it so but let me read you the ones that i do have um because i do have some yes um this one comes from kyle in the 567 area code and guys you don't have to put your name in there if you don't want to you certainly are welcome to we're happy to to know the name uh, but you don't have to um, I will just identify you by area codes if you want. But anyway, but Kyle did put his name. So uh, he says you will have to look up and do Northwest Ohio's most infamous disappearance. Patricia Adkins, her disappearance and possible murder affects my community still to this day. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't familiar with this one. Um, so when I got this text, I did look into it. And uh, yeah, I, I think that I would like to dig into this a little deeper because uh, I'm finding, I was discussing with somebody the other day, I was finding that while I probably wouldn't do a sequel to this season, although you never know, we we could, uh, it's someplace down the road. But I, what I'm thinking, though, of doing is a sequel to my book, Without a Trace. So that I, might I be love the way that. I go. I, that. That'd be scary uh, Because hell, I'm, but I'm, I'm starting to get so many stories. You know, people, as we've been doing the season, have been sending stuff in, which is pretty awesome. So... Uh, anyway, so thanks, Kyle. Um, this one um, comes to us from Brian, and he's in the 618. That's an area code we know. Uh, but he says, my name is Brian. And first off, I love the podcast as well as the other ha American Hauntings books and events. 
I wonder if you ever delved into the Kitterman family murders that occurred in Southern Missouri in 1973. I grew up hearing the stories. The family was distantly related to my own. Stories everything from bank robbery to kidnapping to murder. The Kittermans are buried in the same cemetery as my grandparents, and I recently recently visited and took a few pics. I thought you might enjoy. So yeah, he did send over some um, some photos of the the cemetery and of the graves and uh, a newspaper clipping uh, that came from um, you know that from the murders in the seventies. So and I wasn't familiar with this one either, but um, once I took a look at it, uh, I, I did get interested. So. It's something that I'm hoping that uh, maybe we can do something with at some point. So anyway, uh, thanks, Brian, for sending that. Uh, so here's another one. This one, um, this one, uh, no name. That's good. That's fine because we don't mind. But it comes from the 270 area code. And it says, love the show. Been listening since season one. Coming from Kentucky and have done the Ghosts of the River Road tour. I realize you're not a travel guide. But thinking about coming back for new tours, as we do have some new ones since then, can you recommend a haunted hotel or bed and breakfast in the Alton area? As a matter of fact, we can. And if you were on the River Road tour, you probably saw them while we were on that tour. Um, in in town, in Alton, I, I don't have any recommendations for you there as far as haunted ones. But in Grafton, there's the Ruble Hotel. Uh, which does uh, have a ghost story that you might remember from the River Road tour about the ghost of a little girl named Abigail. Uh, there's also that bed and breakfast, the Maple Leaf Cottages in um, in Elsa, which Elsa. is on the way up to Grafton. Um, and that one's a little harder to get into. You kind of really got to hit the off and season. That, and that bride, yeah, right? Yeah, that's the ghostly bride that haunts the attic room, but it's tough to get into that room. People book that one ahead of time. But yeah. um, just try for the off season, man, and uh, there's a good chance that you could uh, could get in. So um, I got one more. Uh, it says, you guys have a phenomenal podcast. The banner is funny. Oh, this one comes from Eddie. He did follow up and say, hey, oh, I forgot to put my name. This is Eddie. He's in the 678 area code. Said you guys have a phenomenal podcast. The banner is funny. You know, that's dude, you are in the minority, uh, I'm afraid, with most people. They don't think that. But Troy, your books are fantastically written. You've helped my work days flow by quickly. Thank you. So thanks, Eddie. Aww. And I know who this is. I will not use his last name, but uh, Eddie, I see you. Uh, well, I know who you are. Thank you, Eddie. Buddy. Eddie, thank you so much yep, for lying so, a little bit. And yeah, <laughs> 678 totally, area totally. code from Eddie. So Anyway, like I said, I know that we had a couple more, and uh, when we had that outage, we lost a couple of them. But, um, you know, if you have, you want to resend one, you're more than welcome to. If you just want to send us a new one, uh, please do. Um, you can text us at 217-791-7859. So just write that down and drop us a text. Uh, mm -hmm. We'd love to hear from you. And if you've got ideas on what we should call this thing, uh, this text line let us know and we'll right. be happy to use it so now I, all right we good okay so. so troy are you ready to dive in sure yeah all right well, let's start at march 10th 1928 in la christine collins and her son walter uh, her son walter disappears went to see a movie at age 10 which is a little bit different for me yeah, but yeah but right. it's a not, different different place different time yeah but not not all that young i mean really i mean i think i was younger than that going yeah yeah myself, and so, so no no friends have seen him um, cops thought he you know said hey probably ran away but the city is still traumatized by the marion parker case which you <laughs> have right. thought about like 
still i am still yeah yeah well. you are still traumatized yeah. as well so. so i don't like that i don't i, I don't like little <laughs> ghost kids but i also don't like little missing kids um neighbors might have seen a suspect but like who knows bunch of leads go nowhere uh walter's discovered five months later um alive in dekalb illinois but this wasn't the boy and we've already been over this in a pre <laughs> yeah we talked about this case a little bit um for starter uh we just didn't get into the rest of it um we just talked a little bit about walter we were leading into uh, another story so it was just sort of an intro thing but um so we didn't really delve too deep into all of this because that's not what the episode was really about mm -hmm. um but i think it's interesting that this kid who pretended to be walter uh, in my opinion, um, was a genius. I yes. think you think he's dumb. This is this is <laughs> where we will keep going. This, but this is no, I, I disagree. But I think, I think that there's a difference here in the way that we look at this because, um, you know, I look at it as someone who grew up in the '70s. You know, mm -hmm. um, you're a kid who grew up in the '90s, right? So, yeah, I mean, so it's different because. Uh, childhood growing up just wasn't the same i mean stranger danger wasn't a big thing when i was in the 70s i mean yeah, we knew not to talk to somebody in a car and don't get me wrong there were, have always been creeps and deviants out there it's just we didn't focus on it so much we were just sort of on our own you know i i always laugh when i see things on like you know facebook or instagram or something talking about how battle scarred generation x is because we lived through like all these horrible things we had no self i mean not really horrible, but you know what I mean. Absolutely. Um, you know, constant fear of nuclear war, you know, hiding under our desks like, you know, our grandparents did. You know, we had all that kind of stuff we had to deal with and the Russians were going to get us. And, you know, it was just different growing up. And, you know, my mom would say, hey, you know, see you later, you know, go outside, see it dark. You know, we were on our own. I mean, it was we were feral. I mean, we were just right, out, right. you know, roaming the woods and fields and, you know, kids, you know, after us were a lot more tethered to home, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, whether it be cell phones or just, you know, not not getting out doing the kind of stuff that we did. I mean, it yeah. was just different back in our day. And, you know, I always laugh because I always see those pictures of, um, you know, the fairest or not the, the merry-go-rounds that used to be in public parks. And I can remember getting on those things and I think we'd get them up to like 50 miles an hour and jump oh, off or fall off. And, you know, people were, Just were breaking fun. limbs and getting all cut and scraped up, but nobody thought twice about it. It wasn't like they were going to remove them from parks. That came later, you know, when a, a less hardy generation of children came along than we were. So absolutely, you know, I, I know I look at this kid and I think, man, here's a little dude who, you know, was already run away from home because his parents suck, or at least his stepmother does. And somehow gets to DeKalb, Illinois, is in a cafe on his own, sees a newspaper with a picture of Walter on it and thinks, that kid kind of looks like me. I'm going to get an all expenses paid trip to L.A. And when I get there, I'm going to meet my favorite cowboy star, Tom Mix, and then I'm going to get into the movies. I want to work with horses. I want to, you know, be a cowboy in the movies. And so, uh, you know, he comes up with a plan and he almost pulls it off. If Christine had have been so stubborn, he probably it probably would have just continued to be Walter, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and and we like we've been talking about this, but like a little bit off air. But like, yeah, the the whole thing is, 
Um, you know, I ran away from home once when I was <laughs> nine and I think I got to the bottom of the driveway and I was like, yeah. what am I doing? You know, <laughs> right. And, well, and that's the thing. I mean, the cops used to always just say, oh, they ran away. You know, oh, they're, I'm sure they're a runaway. They'll sure. turn up. And I think that that was a lot more common at one time. I mean, especially when you get into you go bit further back and you were talking about the 30s and you're talking about the depression and kids. You know, there's a reason that people joke about, you know, running away to join the circus because they did. did, Right. (laughs) So, you know, you had people hopping, you know, riding the rails and stuff, you know, and it just was a whole different time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the mentality sometimes of law enforcement can be years behind and so many kids went missing and, you know, they just say, oh, you know, they got in some trouble. So they're probably a bad kid. They just ran away, you know, but there was never any evidence of that. And the, the cops aren't so quick to think that anymore. Not like they used to be. Right, right, right. Uh, but that used to be a really common thing. And that's why they're th- they're saying originally they said, ah, Walter must have just run away. God, kid was well, 10. Can I, can I, can I I ask about, um, like one, one of my favorite movies of all time is the greatest showman. And I know there's a lot of problems with that, but you know, uh, I mean, yeah, there's nothing in it that's even remotely real, but it's a great movie. But as far, but as far as the PT running thing is pretty much like his, his parents are dead and he's like, Hey, he sees this train kind of like, Hey, go work on this railroad track. Like, why wouldn't you just go? Yeah, sure. Do that. Like, so it was, that was like a. Yeah, it was a different time. Generality kind of thing of that would happen. People would just kind of run off and people had to grow up a lot earlier years ago. I mean, people got married at 14 and 15 years old, men and women both, you know, because you your lifespan wasn't, you know, 70, 80 years. It might be 50 or 60 if you're lucky. So people get married at 14 and 15, start having kids have their own house. I mean, people, and, but that's why when you look at old pictures and you go, oh my God, that person was 19 and they look like they're a 45 year old Uh businessman. I mean, people just aged faster. They just did. The stress, I would imagine. Well, you started your, you know, your life a lot earlier than today. I mean, you know, 30 year olds living in their parents' basement. That would not have happened 50 years ago, 60 years ago. It just wouldn't. You know, it just wasn't that way. What's the thing I say, Troy, whereas I'm 34 and I've lived on my own for a long time and I still look as old and stressed as the people that dealt with things 40 (laughs) years ago. What? Okay, so uh, but no. So Sanford Clark, who uh, put the police on the trail of Gordon and Sarah Northcott. Other detectives went back to uh, uh, Winville. we, We really jumped ahead there. Sorry, I thought I thought we kind of I thought we'd already kind of talked. Yeah, about I guess we have. I mean, I, I wanted to, you know, I, I guess I brought up the kids that, you know, the other kids that went missing. But you're right. We needed to get to Wineville. Yeah. So yeah. Right. Let's talk, so, do you want to talk about Wineville? No, no, no. I mean, no. I mean, everybody just heard it. I mean, that I just I you just startled me. <laughs> sorry. That's I know sorry. I, I, I normally don't jump ahead that that far. But I mean, there's there's just this is one of the things where I even told Troy beforehand. I was like, dude. This is one of the ones where I feel like it's one episode, but there are still so yeah. many people and players there are that I kind of so many map parts some stuff to this out. story. There really is. And so where you do know, you think, where do you kid, think? Where do you want to start? Well, I mean, I yeah, we can we can move on. I mean, we can we get to Wineville and we got to figure out what this this poor kid. I mean, Sanford, talk about you know Stockholm syndrome. 
Uh -huh. I mean, this kid goes down there with the idea that, oh, I'm going to be hanging out working on a farm. This is going to be great. And then he gets down there and his uncle is a psychopath. Yes. And was that was that like a common thing? I mean, where people just didn't know. I mean, they didn't know what they were getting into. I well, guess. Yeah. And I, I also don't think I mean, yeah, that this 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 dude had grown up in in Canada and then moved to L.A. with his parents, you know, and they moved down there and they buy this farm. And I think this guy was just crazy, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I don't think that. Sanford's only 13. I just don't think he knew, you know, I don't think he knew him very well, but he was a relative. So how it seemed you? safe, you know, it seemed, it seemed safe to go live with your uncle, how, you know, I on, mean, his, how, on his farm. How are you when you were 13? Like how I, you would just be like, yeah, okay, sure. This seems kind of weird, but like, let's yeah, go. well, yeah, no, I mean, in the same situation. Yeah. It probably seemed like a great thing to him and probably would have to me too, until I got there. Uh -huh. You know, and that's the thing. I mean, Reality this, kid, and, but this kid is just beaten to, you know, complete. He has no personality of his own left at this point. You know, he has just been so abused and so traumatized by his uncle who's done ungodly things to him and then forced him to do ungodly things to other kids. And that is even worse. I mean, it's horrible. The whole thing is horrible. There is nothing about this story that doesn't make you want to vomit. There, yes. It really is. This is a bad one. I mean, I said that at the very beginning of this episode. This is a bad one. This is one that you you could be uh, feel okay about turning it off, you know, because mm -hmm. it's it's bad and it never gets any better. Not not at all. You know, it's it's a horrible story. And you know, the 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 kids they find. You know, the, the body parts they find that they think may be multiple kids will never know how many kids he murdered that his mother even knew about because she's a whack job, too. But we'll never know how many kids he really killed. We'll never know. How, how do you figure out how many people it is versus body parts? I mean, it's got to be a ridiculously tedious well, yeah because they didn't have thing. dna back then so the best thing they could do is to try and assemble the body parts they had and see how many um partial let's i mean so different different find, of the similar limbs yeah I guess. yeah i mean you find you know 10 feet or you know 10 hands or 10 skulls or something then you know that you have that many people but when you just find pieces all you can do is the best that you can do yeah to try to put them together i mean they could check blood types and things back then i don't know if you could get that from bones in those days i don't know i mean there was no dna so again we're never going to know how many there were but there were rumors to be you know in the 20s and 30s i mean it was this guy was completely nuts and completely depraved. This reminds you know. me of the uh, like, uh, what is it, Picton murders, I believe, in Canada, that the pig farm kind of thing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, where where it was it was so many victims on like a literal pig farm. Where do you want to start with this? I'm trying to figure out where all this gets connected. I guess. Well, it, it gets connected because the reason that this is part of the Walter Collins story is because according to his mother. Um, Walter was one of the kids that they took. Mm -hmm. So that's why I felt like, you know, we had told part of the story, you know, early on in the season about him disappearing and never coming back. But we didn't talk in length about what probably happened and what happened on the ranch in Wineville. 
because according to his mother, Walter was one of those kids. But on the other hand, she lied a lot, too. So we're never going to know. And, you know, uh, you know, Northcutt, you know, just screwed with, you know, poor Christine. You know, she just she chose to believe him when he said, oh, yeah, we didn't kill Walter. But how you can't believe a word this guy said. Of course not. But it, it made her feel better to choose to believe that that's what happened that it wasn't walter that walter you know was off somewhere living a good life um but i don't think that was the case i imagine he was probably buried underneath one of these chicken coops i really do because there was another boy who escaped later and he also talked about and i didn't include all that because it was just it's everything is unverified sure sure, Uh, sure. but you know there was other talk that walter was among the kids right were there so I don't know. It, it tied it all together because it's a horrible story. And I thought this was a story that was worth telling. But as far as the connection with Walter, that is the connection is that he was probably one of the victims. Do you think like, do you think your family would ever lie for you or you'd lie for your family or vice versa? I will go first. No, <laughs> no. If they're doing shit like this or whatever. Oh, well, okay. Things- this is a step too far. I mean, obviously, minor mean? stuff would be one thing, you know, but I'm not talking about murdering children. That's no, no, no. I would not okay, stick good, up good, for good, anybody, good. you know, um, who would do good to know, Troy. This is good to know. Remotely resembling any of this, you know, no way, no way. Yeah, these people are crazy. Absolutely crazy. Okay, well, okay, so we got a lot of things going here with the Wineville chicken coop murders and and uh, Sanford Clark confesses and stuff and the trial and everything. Where do you want to jump into this then? So I know I've been kind of bouncing around a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it really just kind of boils down to the fact that, as I mentioned, you know, Christine, you know, did what she could. She tried to find out whether or not that Walter was dead. And, you know, according to... You know, Northcutty wasn't, but according to Sarah, she had murdered him. And so we'll we'll never really know. Walter obviously never came home again. You know, I tried to to kind of wrap things up with, you know, what happened with who and who ended up where and you know what happened to Sanford Clark, what happened to that the kid who uh, you know, came, <laughs> came up with the story to be Walter Collins. You know, I tried to 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 get all that together and and talk about what happened, but I think that it's interesting. Uh, in in the end, is that the people in Mariloma were well, Wineville were so traumatized by what had happened in their community, they changed the name of the town. Right. Yes, that's that- an extreme step to take, but they did it anyway. And I honestly, I ran across these stories almost by accident. I was working on Without a Trace and and stumbled mm-hmm. on these stories of people who lived on the property and all these stories came out after the movie did, which we Mm -hmm. talked about the movie before, but uh, when it's a great movie now is a fantastic movie. And when that came out, everybody started going, um, okay. So now I know why my house is so haunted. Uh You know, I mean, people were like, you know, moving out when they found out they lived on the chicken farm, you know, and, and in the house, which was still there. You know, although the farm was gone, people had built on it, but the actual house was still there. And there were a lot of stories about hauntings in that neighborhood. So I thought that was something worth visiting uh, for Halloween. You know, that's why no. I brought the story back. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Sanford takes police to the graves. You have 51 human body parts found. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, there's going to be 
some kind of you know traumatic history around yeah. there and all that and so you talk, keep talking about sarah um finding or confessing to finding a boy in a cage and right, all that right. like that that's Which, just like that's when she said it was walter yeah, yeah and that's... why why would you yeah and 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 going back to that covering for your family thing that you asked me about yeah who does that who finds a kid in a cage ah, and then goes that uh-oh. might push it a little bit yeah too well, he far. told me not to go look out in the chicken coops just guess this was why you know it's like okay Dude, I mean, woman, do something, you know, call the police. But no, she just covered up for him and kept covering up for him. So, or kept trying to. She even tried to take responsibility for all the murders. Yeah. That's how whacked out these people were. And then the trial was just... Like, of North Valley. Oh, yeah, what a was, disaster. Yeah, didn't think he needed a lawyer, um, yeah, which I'm just going to tell client, I'll tell everybody. Themselves. Yeah, I'll tell everybody just like get a lawyer, you mm-hmm. know, as much as you can. Um, terrible cross examination. He's returned a verdict guilty on February 8th, 1929, sent the dust by hanging. Like, just, just get a lawyer. What do you have to lose at that point? Yeah, I would imagine. I like, oh, yeah, man. I, I like the fact that. He was so bad at it that the prosecutor just didn't even ask any questions. No, I mean, <laughs> he'd already made his you, case for why him. Do you, yeah. Why do you have to? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, see, so do you, do you, I mean, do you want to talk about the changeling at all? Or nah, like, I don't think we need to. <laughs> I, I, all I would say is I recommend people see it. It's a great movie. And uh, it, it kind of brings all this to life. Um, not necessarily the, I mean, the, the, the chicken coop murders do play a part in it, a small part in the movie, not as much as they ended up playing in, in this podcast, uh, but they do end up, you know, being a part of it. But I just wanted to revisit it and bring in the ghost stories, which we'd never talked about before. It's Halloween, so I tried to make these as spooky as I could in October. So uh, oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. I love it. Awesome. Um, well, I know. Okay. I know I skipped over a lot of stuff in this one just because. Oh yeah. No, we're, there was a we lot going on. Yeah. We don't, yeah. We don't have to cover it all. We, we, they just heard all of it. You I know. know. So they just heard it. So we're good. Well, Hey, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our latest Patreon subscribers. So thank you so much for supporting the show to Maria, Chrissy, Cynthia, Dean, Casey, Mara, Chris, Michelle, Alexandra, Laura, Justin, Janine, Mufasa's mommy, Jennifer, and Cindy. So thank you again for supporting the show. Um, and as we always tell you guys, and as you heard at the beginning of this, we've got two full seasons of our other podcast already on Patreon, and we're in season three now, which is the HH Home season. So Sinister is what's playing now. So if you're wanting to uh, get in on that, uh, what do we got? Like, say, is episode 13 coming next? Uh, I think that's our next episode, I believe. Uh, is 12 or 13, yeah. Yeah, so um, we've got full episodes. They're usually uh, pretty long, and it's just the story. There's no uh, there's no banter in those. There's a lot of sound effects. <laughs> a lot of sound effects, though. Uh, so, yeah, check them out. If you, uh, you want to be a supporter at Patreon, you can just go to patreon.com slash American hauntings and um, you get signed up for that. So uh, I think you'll, uh, if you dig this kind of stuff and murder mayhem stuff from the 19th century, I think you're going to dig our HH home season. So check it out. Awesome. It is now time for our ghostwriter segment. So if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, please email us at American hauntings podcast at gmail.com. This email comes to us from Taylor and is titled Oklahoma Panhandle. 
says, hi, long time listener, first time caller, LOL. I was listening to the disappearance of the Jameson family episode and you made a joke asking about what goes on in the panhandle. Well, it's actually a very interesting history. Before Prohibition, the Panhandle was not owned by Oklahoma or Texas. It was its own territory owned by no one and was called No Man's Land. Nothing was illegal, and it became a hub for outlaw activity. Sounds great. It stayed that way until the government tried to enforce Prohibition laws on the area and was forced to add it to Oklahoma. It's such a cool history and worth the research. Hope y'all are well, and I love listening. I would also love to hear some episodes about Ohio if you guys ever have a need for some new season ideas. Take care. Well, thank you very much, Taylor. I appreciate that. And sorry that I made fun of the panhandle. So I don't know. I guess well, that's that was, cool. Was it No Man's Land? I mean, No Man's Land, yeah, in my, in that's my head, awesome. it sounds, that sounds like awesome a to terrible me. war kind of thing, oh. but also like it outlaws. Or I, I, oh, I, don't, I thought it sounded awesome. So I oh. guess that's... <laughs> Well, I mean, Again, well, Troy, there's you, a difference in Troy, opinion. Troy, Troy, tell me, tell me, you you would know what is what is no man's land? Is isn't no man's land the the area between war zones where there's probably no, bombs that, and terrible shit? Well, to I mean, I suppose, yeah, during World War One, yeah. I mean, oh, you're okay, right so that's that, where so. I know it from. Well, yeah, I'm sure that. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, and those were terrible places. But the way that she described no man's land, it sounds like I would like to be the king of no man's land. So I would enjoy that. Um, it sounds like an awesome place uh, with no laws and uh, you just do whatever you want. So it sounds like Mad Max, you know. So. <laughs> I've got the Jason hockey mask and a guitar player on the front of my. Yeah, see? Yeah. Um, no, it's uh, yeah, that is cool, though. Thanks for uh, thanks for writing in on that. Yes, so, thank you. Taylor, yeah, for that. since we, we did, uh, you know, we we weren't very kind to Oklahoma, no. even though, again, I love Oklahoma. My favorite chicken place in the entire world is in Oklahoma. So I love it. So uh, it's just, it's, it's an easy target. I have no problem with Oklahoma. I was just very curious about what goes on in that weird spot. Of I know it, that's it a is total weird, but you know, in Texas, rectangle. it's got the one that goes up. Yeah. It's got the, I want to know what up. happens that's, there too. Yeah. There's gotta be something weird to that as well. Yeah. So, anyway. so yeah. Okay. So Troy, okay. That's all I got. If there's anything else okay. you want to talk about, go no. for it. If not, let's absolutely let's not. Up. Oh, I do want, well, I do want to add, I do want to add one thing. Uh, if you are looking for books, tours, events, or whatever at AmericanHauntings.net, um, don't forget to use the discount code podcast. Uh, you can also use the link in Cody's shirt store, which is AmericanHauntingsClothing.com. Uh, and it gets you 10% off everything you order. I like to remind people of that. I know a lot of you use it. A lot of you forget that probably should be using it because I just saw a lot of people today who kept telling me, how much they love the podcast. Aww. And for some reason, they kept saying how soothing our voices are. And I oh. would disagree with that. Oh, but boy. They seem to think so. And so whatever they say, they're right. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, we, uh, we, we still have plans to do things with our voices at some point. I know I'm still working on it. <laughs> don't don't pressure me, Cody. So anyway, I know he's been bugging me about something, but we'll get to it. But anyway, I guess that's it. So I think we can wrap it up. Awesome. Yeah. And please, if um, if I owe you a shirt for your Patreon subscription yes. for October, please let me know. Some of you. Or hit please me up. just respond to the email that Cody already sent you. 
All right. Well, this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends, neighbors, and random people on the street about it. And follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. See the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok for some reason, and anywhere else that you waste hours every day when you're supposed to be working or studying. We promise that we're much more entertaining. Thanks for listening. We couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. 217-791-7859. How's that? Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off. 
at MVMT.com.